Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Hello, Melissa. Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where I'm going to be interviewing you today. Hey, Lisa. I am really excited for this interview. Me too. Me too. You know, we've gotten a lot of feedback that people... Our listeners want to know more of our stories, they want to know us better, and they want to know more about our roles in the adoption triad. And we have a unique situation as co-hosts of our podcast of really making up the entire triad between the two of us. So we are both adoptive moms, and um, as most people know, I am a birth-slash-first mom, and you are an adult adoptee. So together... We comprise the triad. And in last week's episode, you interviewed me about my experience of being a birth mom and um, how that interacts and affects how I function or maybe function is not quite the right word, but how it impacts me as an adoptive mom. And today, we're going to talk about how being an adult adoptee affects and impacts your role as an adoptive mom. So to get us started, we put out a question to our private Facebook group, which, by the way, we invite every single one of you to uh, join us there. It's a lot of fun. Definitely. And uh, Yeah. And anyhow, I just said, hey, I'm going to be interviewing Melissa this week. What would you want to know? And we got so many good questions. So we're going to use those questions to really drive this interview. But before we start that, I want Melissa to give us just sort of a brief overview of her story of adoption. I am the oldest of three children. We are all adopted, all from Korea, all from different families, all came home as infants. So I came home almost at four months old. Then I have a younger brother who's just about two years younger than me, who came home at six months old, which was actually a little bit older for infant adoption back in the 80s. And then we have a sister who's about three years younger than him, and she came home when she was three months old. So it was definitely a different time in adoption. The process looked much, much different. My parents are both Caucasian and suffered from infertility, and that was their primary reason for adopting. And they both adore kids and, you know, wanted a bigger family. And so adoption was the way that they made that happen. Um, And love kids, the fact that they're in their 60s and kind of semi-retired, but they teach preschool together uh, three days a week. They teach a three-year-old preschool class together. They've been doing that for over a dozen years now. So that That is really special. I know. That is really, really special. How sweet for those children because so many kids don't have grandparents nearby and your parents are at the age that they can kind of function that way for some of these kids. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, super fun. So so I would say that's like the nutshell. I'm sure we'll get into a lot of other parts of my story, but the other part that I should mention is I was abandoned at somewhere in Korea, probably at an orphanage. Um, in a small city called Masan, which is on the east, east southeast coast of Korea, South Korea, without any identifying paperwork or anything like that. So probably at a couple days old, uh, I have an estimated birthday, no real connection to birth family or any way to easy way to really connect there. So that's probably an important part to mention. Yeah, and hopefully some of these questions will get to that. I actually didn't even read through all of the questions before we started, so that's kind of fun in a way because I feel like it'll be a little bit of a surprise for me too. Okay, so first question. Mostly, did you grow up feeling you had a happy story or one that made you always sad and angry? And if happy, how do you feel your parents played into you feeling good about yourself and having been adopted? Such a great question. Actually, they're all, I'm going to preface this, they're all great questions. So good, I was like, so impressed. I mean, stuff that I, I either haven't been asked before or hadn't even thought about before. So great job, guys. I would say that I am a happy adoptee story. And I think it's important to preface this. I have been deep diving into the Enneagram lately. And I know that that's a buzzword and 
you know, I think when thing, something goes kind of viral as the Enneagram has, um, there's a danger that, you know, we don't understand it in its fullness. But for me, it's been a tool to help me, I think, have more compassion with the people in my life, understand them better, and even just reflect back on my own childhood, how I got to where I am now. And I am a seven on the Enneagram with a pretty big eight wing and a seven who spends a lot of time traveling her seven one path. Like I have um, sevens go to ones can access one energy, if you will, in stress, which clearly we've been living a stressful life for a while. So when I think about that, it helps me frame my perspective of my adoption story because I have always had really positive feelings about it. And a lot of it, you know, sevens are thinkers. We're not, we're kind of more feeling repressed. And so it just made sense to me. It made sense that a mom who couldn't care for her baby would do the loving thing to help her end up in a family that could care for her. My parents always made us feel cherished and like, I mean, they would talk like they were so excited about every part of the adoption process, you know, finding out who we were, seeing our picture for the first time, picking us up from the airport. And it just all made sense to me. And I think it's a very seven personality thing to just kind of never question the sad. We're kind of eternal optimists. We can reframe any situation to see the silver lining. And we're also very future oriented in time. So I think I just didn't dwell too much in the past. Like this was the way, this is how I got here. And I was, I've always just been looking for the next thing. So I think I just didn't spend too much time overly processing, you know, even why I was abandoned or, or how. And, um, and that's been really freeing for me, even just recently. I mean, like the past week recently, because, you know, I am in this community of adoptive families and understand fully that all adoption, adoptees experience their stories in different ways. And our kids have experienced their stories in different ways. And I think there are a lot of happy adoptees out there. I don't think that they're telling their stories as openly because they don't feel the need to be heard in the same way as sad and angry adoptees or people who have sad and angry feelings about their adoption story but for so long, I really felt like an oddity, like there was something wrong with me because I had never had sad or angry feelings about my adoption. So I think knowing more about my personality and just how I tackle life in general has really helped me even me feel more confident to say that like, yes, I had a happy growing up where adoption was for sure a part of my life, but not a sad part. And your siblings are also adopted. Have they experienced it the same way you have, or have they processed being adopted differently? Yes. And we actually grew up on a block. When I was in sixth grade, we moved onto a block where there were seven Korean adopted children between three families. So I got to play out, I got to watch a lot of people very closely play out their, you know, adoption journeys. And I have also have two cousins who are adopted domestically. And so I have known for a lot of years and reassured families for a lot of years that every child experiences their adoption differently. And I, I very, very much believe that. And I've seen that just in our own family. We're like, I always call the three of us in our family, like three points on a triangle personality wise and how we've experienced our adoption are like as far as you can get as like three points on a triangle. You know, there's not like two of us who did it one way and one of us who did it another way, like all three of us, totally different. That's kind of nice to know because there's not a right or wrong, right? I mean, how we feel about our personal experiences and our origins is, it is a very personal thing. And, and our personalities, like you're sharing with the Enneagram, play into how we process that. So it's interesting um, that in one family with the same parents, same adoptive parents, you're all from the same country, you all were adopted as infants, and you all processed your experience differently. So I think that's really important for all of us as adoptive moms to remember. Okay, so this is a similar, but I just want to hear your response on this. 
How do you feel when articles and books and people say things like, quote, all adopted kids have adoption issues, quote? My husband was adopted and it bothers him when he hears that because he is fairly well adjusted with a winky smiley face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think I would have pushed back a bit against this uh, five years ago. But I also know that I think how we have experienced our challenges in adoption as adoptive parents, I think my experience has impacted that. Even though I remember my childhood is very happy and I don't have sad and angry feelings about my adoption, I think I have repressed a lot of abandonment issues and they were never triggered until we parented children from adoption with attachment issues who pushed us away. And so I just think that's interesting. I just think even for those of us who feel like maybe we're quote unquote normal or don't have issues, I just, I think there's, you just never know what might pop up. And, and I just, I say that with a lot of grace too, because I also think we all, you know, sevens aren't just happy. We're also feeling repressed. <laughs> So it's not that we don't have the feelings. It's just that we're not willing to deal with them, I think. And so sometimes it takes a really stressful situation to have those things bubble to the top. So I'm not naive to say, naive enough to say that I don't think I have any adoption issues, but I don't think that they have played a super impactful role throughout my whole life. But interesting that they came to the forefront when you were parenting, um, traumatized adopted children. That's really interesting. And I think that's important for us. I know my birth mom stuff definitely has impacted my experience as adoptive mom. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Um, let's jump to something a little bit different. What did it feel like as a teen? Did you feel you belonged and connected? Did you ever have issues with shame or trust? Maybe that's too big to remember all that. Did yeah. you feel you belonged and connected? I definitely felt like I belonged and connected as much as you can as a, you know, teenager. I am super social. I'm an extrovert. I energize off of people. The other caveat to my story is one of those seven adopted children who lived in our block was my best friend. And she was my best friend long before we ever moved to that block. And she obviously is also a Korean adoptee. I think we took each other for granted because we weren't like connected at the hip. You know, we did a lot of, we're both super independent people. And I would say both feel super adjusted in our adoption story. But I think I wouldn't underestimate it as well because there was this normalcy. And I think even if I hadn't had her in particular, I think just the normalcy of being around other families who had adopted. Um, I also, I grew up in Baltimore which is a pretty diverse place. And so I think even without the adoption piece, there were immigrants from the Philippines and from Vietnam and, you know, a pretty significant percentage of the population was black. So I think that was helpful too, because I wasn't the one kid of color in my class or even the one kid from Asia in my class. And I think all of that plays a huge part into how connected kids feel, um, aside from just personality. So the other part of this question was if maybe this is a little personal, if you've ever had issues with shame or trust that you think are related to being an adoptee. I don't think so, but I think it again, goes to my personality type. If you know the Enneagram well, you know that there's no natural move to shame, like shame, like we're feelings repressed, but we're also shame repressed. Like there are triads in the Enneagram that shame is their dominant emotion. It is not true for sevens. And as I've been learning more about this, I even think that the feeling that I have identified as shame might not even hold a candle to what other people talk about as shame. And I know we've always talked about, you know, kids from trauma having quicker shame cores that they shame very quickly. And I think there's a little bit in that, but I think for me, it was different. It was more just I wanted to avoid the pain of being in trouble. It wasn't so much that I was feeling shame about it. I just, it was inconvenient. <laughs> so that's funny. 
Yeah. I, you know, like, like I you just didn't like, have room in your life for conflict, right? Yeah. I just didn't have room for it. Like I didn't like being in trouble cause it slowed me down and you know, I didn't, you know, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I didn't feel the sense of shame and it was over very quickly. Like if the person who needed to address it with me could get by it quickly, I could get by it quickly. Like I didn't sit in it and I still don't. Um, and then in terms of trust, I think because I just love people so much, I want to be able to trust them. I don't do intimacy super well, but it's not a trust thing. It's, it's more of a personality thing, I think. Okay. So here's kind of a fun question. How did you feel about your name? Do you miss having a Korean name or wish anything particular about your name? Now we know you were adopted as an infant because she goes on to ask some questions about that. Cause of course some of us like you and like me adopted older kids who had clearly lived with their names for a long time. You came home as an infant do you have any part of a Korean name in your full name? I don't. And I do remember, so my best friend has an American name, an American middle name, but then her Korean name is her second middle name. And I do remember as a kid sometimes wishing that that was the case, but not in a way that was super disruptive. And I also remember, it's funny because this question brought up stories that I had just forgotten about, but my parents were always super open about connecting to the Korean culture. And um, I don't remember them ever making a big deal out of some of the crazy things that we did. When my best friend and I were like nine or 10, we decided that at 16, we were going to be grown up enough to go back to Korea together. I don't know why 16 sounded like it was a good, no one told us differently. Like no one was like, you won't even be adults by then. You can't leave the country. They were like, okay. And we were like, well, if we're going to go back to Korea, we're going to need to know how to speak Korean. Um, super lot. We were like super logical. And so we were like, well, and if that's the case, we only have a couple years and we're going to need to learn Korean. And so someone needs to enroll us in Korean school. So in fourth and fifth grade, my parents found some local, cultural like Saturday thing and we enrolled in Korean school to learn the language and I do remember learning how to write my Korean name in Korean and I remember writing that on papers in school like just because I could or I think because you know it was like the like no one else could do that it wasn't so much like a longing it was more like haha like I can do this and you can't um (laughs) yeah so there was that part um but generally speaking, yeah, I think I, I think because I also knew that a Korean name would be harder for people, um, like it would make me stand out, be more different than I really cared to be. And I feel as white as everyone who I live around looks. So I think it just fit to have an American name. Here's another question about your name. Um, she says... I'm guessing Melissa wasn't your given name. How do you feel about your parents giving you a new name? This is interesting. Did you get a birth certificate from the States with your parents' name on it? And how does that make you feel? Um, I do. Uh, And most of us do, especially if we became citizens. It's kind of part of the process, I think. And I'm, I've, you know, it's funny. I've never given it a thought until you asked that question, which I means to say that, it never really bothered me, I suppose. But also the logical part of me says, well, if it wasn't going to have their names on it, whose names was it going to have? And this circles back to something else in Korea and especially in the eighties and for centuries before Korea's registration, family registration system exists by bloodline through the father. So when a child is born in Korea, that family registers that child under her father's birthline, bloodline. If a child is born to a single mother, there's no bloodline. Because there's no bloodline, you actually can't register that child in the country, which means that child won't go to school, won't receive medical benefits, won't, like, won't be treated as a citizen. So when we look at the history of adoption in Korea, I think birth moms sometimes get a bad rap for abandoning kids because there were many of us, tens of thousands of us, especially in the 70s and 80s. But when you think about the fact that a child found abandoned on the streets of Korea would be assigned a bloodline 
and be allowed citizenship, it makes a lot of sense why a single mom would feel the need to abandon a child because there literally was no way to single parent. Um, and so I think, again, this is my thinking part. I rationalize everything. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm not hurt by that because it's what I would, you know, it's what I would have done. So anyway, to back to the birth certificate thing, because I was abandoned, I don't feel like I lost heritage or rights or any of that by having a birth certificate with my adoptive parents' names on it because I, I, don't, I wouldn't have had one otherwise. So in many ways, that birth certificate with your parents' name on it feels authentic to you. It does. And And it feels life-giving. You know, it feels like a blessing. Like I could have been a person with parentless, a parentless birth certificate or with assigned government names. Like instead the names on that birth certificate have a whole lot of emotional meaning to me now, you know? So. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think in contrast, you and I both know a lot of um, adult adoptees who feel that because they're, let's say in a domestic adoption, like my son, his original birth certificate, which had my name on it, had his birth father's name on it, and his name that I had given him was sealed, and a new one was created listing his parents as if they had given birth to him. And I think for a lot of adoptees who experience that, it doesn't feel authentic. You know, it doesn't, it feels like it's trying to close a chapter that, and hide it, sort of, rather than acknowledging it. What, what do you think? Well, so it's interesting. As you're talking about that, I'm thinking about our older kids and their birth certificates. And I think my feeling of inauthenticity comes up as an adoptive parent because I, my name is on the birth certificate of three children who I fully am aware of what ages I became quote unquote mom in their life. They were 11, 13, and 14. You know, one of the things that makes it glaringly obvious that I was not their first mom is like, for instance, our oldest son, there's only 16 years between us chronologically. And for whatever reason, the state of Maryland lists the age of the mother at the time that the child was born. I don't know why that's important, but You know, John has a birth certificate that lists Patrick and me as parents as 19 and 16 year olds. It just feels dumb. Like, and, and again, like, you know, I recognize the need to document and we specifically got American birth certificates because, you know, the paper trail in Ethiopia is dicey and we wanted their security as American citizens to be all wrapped up in a neat little bow. And we, we don't take that birth certificate very seriously. You know, I think we all know in our family that that's just the piece of paper that we needed to get. And um, I don't know how my kids feel about those pieces of paper, but I know as a, and just as an adoptive parent, and maybe because I'm an adult adoptee, I do feel that sense of inauthenticity more strongly than other parents might. But I, you know, I don't put a whole lot of, like, that paper doesn't mean much to me because I don't, my identity is not having to be a first mom in their lives. Like, I am very aware of the role that I am able to play in their life, and I hold it pretty loosely. That's really good. This is so interesting. This is a really interesting interview, I have to admit, even though I'm the one doing it. I'm really enjoying hearing your thoughts about all of this. What did your, what do you wish your parents would have known or done differently? Another way she phrases it, what did they do right? I think what they did right was talk about our adoption often. Well, not, I wouldn't even say often. I feel like we always knew the door was open. We celebrated what we called airplane day because we all came on airplanes. Just as an aside, just think about this because y'all have traveled. In the 80s, you didn't have to travel. And you didn't even have to hire an escort. The agency in Korea would literally take 10 to 15 babies and walk onto a plane with them and ask for volunteers to hold them on the ride from Korea to the States, which is if you go direct, which I'm not even sure there were direct flights in the 80s, but to go direct from Seoul to Dulles now takes about 22 hours. There would be like one agency representative 
10 to 15 babies and then a whole bunch of volunteers. It's, it's really kind of incredible to fathom. Like I, I'm sure things have been written about it, but I mean, just picture this, you know, these are strangers taking your, I mean, the baby is leaving their country, their culture, the smells, the sights, the sounds, the language being placed in the arms of a stranger and then flying this long distance to be placed in the arms of more strangers. Yeah. And like virtually unaccompanied. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's just crazy, but all that to say, so we have airplane day. So airplane day is the day that we landed in the States and it was like a second birthday. We would get a small gift. We would get to choose dinner or, or we would often do Chinese takeout. The other part, they would always get out our baby book and retell our adoption story every year from start to finish until we were really, you know, until we were like old enough. We're like, mom, we did, you know, we've done this, been there, done that. We don't need to do it again. You know? And like I said, you know, there was just this feel when they would tell the story about how excited they were, how, you know, and this was before 9-11, obviously we had airport parties, you know, so I'm the oldest of these seven Korean adoptees on our block. And my parents were friends with the other family and their two children are younger, significantly younger than me. I never remember going to see a baby at a hospital, but I remember three, four, my two siblings and their two children, four distinctive airport parties where we would go a couple hours before the plane was supposed to land right up to the gate. And we would have balloons and cake and presents and 30 to 40 people. And we would all run around the terminal and play with the play pay phones and, and wait and wait and wait and watch every plane come in and ask, is that the one? Is that the one? Is that the one? And then watch all these babies come out to meet their families. I think the other thing that my parents did right is there were books about Korea. If there was a cultural festival about Korea, we were there. If we asked to do something Korean, like go to Korean school, they found a way to do it, you know? And so, and again, I don't know if this is personality. I don't know. Like there was never an allowance for a victim mentality. And I struggle with even saying that out loud because again, personality plays into this. I think without our parents ever even mentioning the hurt of adoption, I think some kids feel it intuitively. It it was just who we were. We were always made to feel special for it. And not in a way, I don't know how they struck this balance, not in a way that we had to feel grateful, but just that we were precious and special. And I don't know, it just never occurred to me to feel sad about it because I felt like a celebrity at school. Like I had a story that no one else had. I used to joke with people like, I could be two years older than you. Of course I couldn't be, but mm-hmm. I didn't know my real birthday. So I would, I could play that up. You know, I, I could get out of the family tree assignment or make it up how I wanted. Like I had so many choices that other kids didn't have because my story allowed for all these choices and you just had a boring family. You knew who your parents were and you had to do your family tree exactly how it obviously was. Mine could be whatever I wanted it to be. (laughs) So you must've been the most interesting child, Melissa. (laughs) So, so interesting. So, I mean, it sounds like your parents did a pretty exceptional job with um, helping you stay connected to Korean culture and in in the defense for all of us, the rest of us, all of their children were from the same country and you were all adopted. So they had one country that they could sort of embrace and learn about. And, and I'm not making excuses for some of us because all, actually all of my adopted children are from the same country too. But of course we know lots of adoptive moms who have kids from multiple countries, which certainly makes it more complex, but your parents were really intentional about that. Do you remember um, someone asked if there was a particular age when connection to your Korean culture became more important to you, you referred to wanting to go to Korean school. Was that about in that late elementary preteen age? Did that feel like a time when it became more important to you? Yes and no. Like, I think it was when we were independent enough to kind of ask some of those questions, but like if we ever had to, you know, research a country of our choice. Like I always picked Korea. If we had to bring, like if we had an international food day at school, it was always Korea. Like, I mean, that's how we ended up with our first son from Korea because I was on a waiting child list with multiple countries and which country did I go to? Korea. I don't know. Like, I just think it was always a thing. There was always this 
pull towards Korea because obviously we had come from there. I feel like it was less of like a developmental, like wanting to be connected. And again, going back to like, it just seemed logical that we would want to go back. 16 seemed to be the age. We made that decision at 10, which seemed to be the obvious time to learn Korean. I don't know that there was for us a whole lot more to it than that. Like both of our families had introduced us to Korean food and to Korean culture before that. But it does, it ebbs and flows. Like when we started homeschooling and I had more control over what my kids could learn because they were young and they would did whatever I wanted. Like, you know, we did Rosetta Stone Korea. Like we picked Korean, not French or Spanish, but it's always been a draw for sure. So there's so many other things I want to talk about, but let's just jump ahead. Did you and your friend make that trip? We didn't. I mean, because, you know, at 16, we were broke and learning how to drive and in, still in high school and all those things. So my first trip back to Korea was actually our trip to pick up, uh, pick up our son, Ty. And my mom went with us and very specifically asked, you know, can I tag along? I've never been to Korea. I have three kids from there. We didn't have to go when you all were, you know, coming home. So, yeah, that was our first and currently only trip. Although if there was an opportunity for us to move abroad, either to Korea or Ethiopia, we would probably do it in a heartbeat. So tell us a little bit about what that experience was like going to Korea for the first, well, returning for the first time. And of course, your mind was probably very focused on this little child you were about to adopt, but you were also going back as an adult adoptee. And for the first time being immersed again in your culture. Did you have room in your mind to reflect on that very much? Not a ton, but I will say I'm really glad that I felt very strongly in who I was and in my identity because what I didn't expect was how out of place I would feel. I mean, I knew that I would feel out of place because it was a foreign country. The thing that happens when you look one way on the outside and you feel another way culturally on the inside is people look at you on your outsides. And so when you go back to Korea, you look like you fit in, but you don't because you don't have their cultural mindset. You don't know the language. Um, I knew just enough to tell people that I only spoke English, which turned out to be super important because here I was in a group of six people, my mother and my mother-in-law, both the whitest, two whitest women you'll ever meet were there. (laughs) Plus my husband, also white, blue eyes, Um, and then we took PJ and me, our two kids by birth. They were little, maybe like five and three. So here we are, this party of five or six people traveling around Korea. And we would ask someone a question or my mom would ask someone a question or Patrick would, and they would immediately turn to me like this white person's trying to ask me a question, help us out. And they would speak to me in Korean. And I knew just enough Korean to say it back in Korean I speak English, Mm. you know, and then they were really confused. And so, so that was interesting. And I can understand that if I had been heading back to Korea to feel like I fit in because I didn't feel like I fit in in the States, which was not my story, but if that had been my story and I had headed back, that feeling of disconnect, I think would have been devastating. Um, And I know that it is. I've talked to other Korean adoptees who have had that experience. We did make a point since we were, you know, on the other side of the planet to go back to my birth city, but I did it more out of, because like, it felt like the right thing to do. Not because I had a particular emotional connection, because like I said, I was abandoned. I, you know, it turns out that the orphanage that I was probably abandoned at doesn't, it doesn't exist in the same physical space that it did in the eighties. And I was that orphanage, is really that organization is really for cares for kids whose parents are too poor to care for them. And so most of those children are not true orphans and their parents come back and visit or take them for months at a time and then bring them back. So when I was found, I stayed maybe for an overnight and then I was transferred to Holt, which is one of the main adoption agencies in Korea. So their file on me is literally like a paragraph long. (laughs) You know, like it's not tons of papers, like this kid, she was found, we transferred her to Holt, end of story. So, you know, we, we arranged a meeting with the orphanage director and all of these things. And we sat down and she was kind of like, what do you want to know? And I didn't even know what I wanted to know. So she told me what she knew, which is kind of what I already knew. 
And then it was kind of awkward. And she gave us a tour of the orphanage. And then we went to the fish market. We ate lunch. And then we went back to Seoul. So in some ways, it was a little anticlimactic. In hindsight, I wish I had had Holt maybe see if my foster mom was still around. Because uh, I would have stayed with her for a couple months before being transferred to the States. And I don't really feel a super emotional connection to her. But I imagine, as a mom, in hindsight, that it would have been cool for, you know, foster moms in Korea see dozens of kids come through their home. You know, it's just, it's part of the process to foster and and most of them are in the adoption pipeline. So it's very possible she might not even have had a super strong memory of me, you know, 30 some odd years later, someone who was there for only a couple months. But, you know, I can imagine that could have been an experience for her to just connect with one of the kids who had come through her home, if that had been a possibility. But so interesting, really. I'm, I'm just sitting here listening to you, forgetting that I'm supposed to be interviewing you and thinking about the questions I'm asking, because it's so interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Let's talk a little bit about what it felt like to adopt a Korean child. So, so you are 100% Korean. Your adopted son, is he also full Korean? I, I mean, as far as we know, yeah. And he looks yeah. Korean. Yeah. yeah. And then your, your children by birth are, of course, biracial, essentially. Right. We call, them Amer, we call them Amer-Asian. Okay, great. Is that a technical? I don't know, or... but I like it. Okay. So, <laughs> so your kids by birth are Amer-Asian, and you and your adopted son are fully Korean. What did it feel like to adopt him and look in his face and see maybe where he looks just a little more like you or, and people would assume he's your son by birth. Yeah. I think that's been the most interesting part. Well, first of all, our agency didn't do a ton of pre-training, but they did do a lot of cross-cultural training because they do a lot, a lot of cross-cultural adoptions. And we did this exercise where there were all these like pony beads of different, you know, red, yellow, black, white, like all the race colors or whatever. And you went around the room and you had your cup and they would say, put a bead in for you. And you would pick the color that corresponded to your race and put it in, pick the bead for your husband and pick the bead for your, any other children in your life and your parents and, you know, pretty much anyone in your day-to-day interaction, your boss, whoever. The idea was to look in your cup and realize that like you have a cup of white beads and then your adopted child. And just to understand that that was going to be a challenge for them. But of course I looked in my cup and my sister at the time was married to a black man and I to, you know, Asian, we called, I put, picked yellow beads for them because, you know, they look Asian enough and, you know, Asian for me and Asian for my sister and Asian for my brother and Asian for the kid we were bringing home. So his cup actually looks pretty promising. Uh, <laughs> but I think it gave us this, this false sense of security that we had this, right? Because I knew nothing about trauma at this point. This was, you know, over 10 years ago. And their biggest concern was, cultural identity of this child. And I thought, we've got this, like, you know, I'm a adult adoptee, he's going to look like me. But I also love talking about adoption. I love talking about our story. I love, you know, when I was growing up, none of us matched. So we got approached by other adoptive families all the time, because it was obvious we were an adoptive family. I have two white parents and two Korean siblings. And I'm used to looking like an adoptive family. And I think that's different than a lot of how adoptive parents come to it, because this is how I've, I've lived my life kind of being questioned in public for my whole life. Um, it's, it's kind of fun for me. And I love connecting with other adoptive parents. And so I would go out with, you know, once my first two children were in school, it would just be Ty and me. We would go out and we would see another adoptive mom and son. And I would go up and start talking and chatting and adopt. And I forget, like, we don't look like we're an adoptive family when we're together. So then I would have to explain ourselves. I didn't look like this crazy, you know, stalker lady. So yeah, I mean, just little nuances here and there. I think the bigger thing was my best friend, when she had her first child, her mom said to her, is it weird to finally have someone in your life who looks like you? Hmm. Because, you know, even though we were adopted with siblings from the same country, you know, not all Asians actually look alike. So we, you know, we, there is no family, like true family resemblance there. That experience for me actually happened with our kids by birth first, because there's a pretty strong resemblance between me and my daughter. That's interesting to like, when, when I finally gave birth, like that was the first time that I'd ever had anyone in my life who was genetically connected to me. One of uh, our daughter's best friends is an adoptee and Um, We've had a lot of conversations about what that felt like 
to have her first child and to look in his face and know that for the first time in her life, there was someone who kind of looked like her, you know, and it's been very powerful for her. And we've had some good conversations about it. I want to jump back to a question from when you were a child. I think this is interesting. Uh, Were there ever any sort of mean kid comments directed towards you as an adoptee that you remember? Did your parents help you develop any kind of scripts or was that just something that was assumed that would not happen? I think it was definitely assumed that it wouldn't happen to me as a girl. They were always cautioned that my brother would struggle to date in high school as an Asian male, but that the girls would probably struggle less. I remember lots of questions about our family. Um, not all of them adoption. We also, I grew up in a really conservative Christian household and, and went to public school. So honestly, I think more of the questions I fielded growing up were about how we lived our life more than our adoption story. But I do remember some things, but I don't remember mean comments really. And maybe they were mean. And again, I have reframed them and and not remembered them that way. One of my best friends in elementary school did tell me much, much later in our friendship, she did say like, I remember you walking into the kindergarten room and all I wanted to do was stick my tongue out at you. And I didn't like your eyes. She's like, but then we became friends and, you know, it was kind of like, you know, and I remember thinking like, oh, like just the fact that she shared that, like the dawning on me of how other people perceive me because I perceive myself as white. So I think it's always a shock to me when someone perceives me as something different, but I don't remember like it being a thing. Um, and, but, but again, I'll just go back to the fact that we grew up in a really diverse area. And I think that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that would make a pretty significant difference. Um, yeah. We talked about all the things your parents did, right? Is there anything you wish they would have done differently? Oh, um, I mean, there's probably always things, right? But I, right. I think, well, okay. So there's one thing. I was a rager for whatever reason. Well, anger is like still one of my, I think my go-to emotions. And, um, and it sounds so dumb. And I know I've talked a little bit about it here before, but I don't do chores. I don't do house cleaning. I didn't do chores when I was a kid. Um, I'm understanding that to be a personality thing. Like they're not fun. And they're mundane. Like, I don't like repetitive things. Like, even when I was training for triathlons, I could never bike the same route twice. Like, once I had biked one five-miler, I'd have to find a different one. I could not do the same one again. Like, I just, it, like, made me want to crawl out of my skin. I never ran the same three miles ever. So, chores, because it's like, you know, you make the same bed every day or you clean up the same floor. Like, I just, there's nothing in me that wants to do that. I think I was a pretty compliant child. I was a people pleaser. I did really well in school. But if you asked me to clean my room, and we grew up in a 16-foot wide townhome. The whole house was 16 feet wide. All three bedrooms, living room, dining room, all fit. Like, I mean, it was tall and it was deep, but it was tiny. So, I mean, we're not talking a big bedroom or with a lot of stuff. I shared a room with my sister. Just asking me to clean my room could send me into like a four-hour rage. Like the kind of rage where I would lay on the bottom bunk, lift up the top bunk as far as I could and bang it against the floor. I would kick walls. I would scream. I mean, all of the things. Like completely not the appropriate level of reaction to what was being asked of me, for sure. Completely, understandably, my mother was really frustrated at me every time that that would happen because she loves cleaning. Like, tidying up is like her idea of fun. I would get sent to my room, you know, because I was throwing a fit and, you know, connected parenting obviously wasn't a thing. I do remember moments of feeling like I just need a hug to calm down, but she would never give it to me. Like, and I don't even know that I asked, but I just remember thinking it alone in my room. I totally get why she didn't like, I wouldn't have wanted to either. But it's interesting. I think about that sometimes when, you know, our kids are really upset. You know, when it goes, like, you know, sometimes like a fit goes from like angry to sad. You can like feel that shift. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I remember feeling that shift. And I think in sad, I wanted a hug, but my room still wasn't clean. So that wasn't really available to me. 
and I don't know how that would have changed anything because I certainly, you know, it wasn't defining of my whole childhood, but I do remember that very distinctively. And I don't have a super, like, I don't have a ton of memories from childhood because again, I'm future oriented. So I tend to just forget things. (laughs) Forget and move on. Did your parents ever seek any professional help for you? Like, did they ever think, oh my goodness, this girl needs a counselor or how are we going to handle this? Do Do you know now, looking back, if they were concerned? We never saw a counselor. So I don't know if it ran through their mind. I, I just, I think I know for sure she just didn't understand it because it just didn't make any sense to her. I think because I was a kid who was so well adjusted in so many other things, you know, some, I think they had their hands full with so many, like by that point, my brother was also there. Like he was always a handful, like in the boy, like no one knew about sensory things. He was always, I think he's probably like he has a very, he's an aggressive, like loves conflict personality. And my mom is definitely not. So I think she always had her hands full with him. And so I think, you know, the fact that she could send me to my room and I would just bang around for a couple hours and then I would read a book and get over it. I don't, I think just think it was lower on the totem pole than like all the other things she was juggling. But I think that's so true for, um, you know, I know for me and for other adoptive moms, you know, the kid with the most needs, the kid who is the most dysregulated or aggressive or whatever, they're going to get so much more of our time, attention, resources, and it sort of goes down the ladder. And unfortunately, some of those kids whose needs may not be quite as out there and obvious in front of us all the time are still pretty important. And for me, it's sort of been like, okay, I'm, I'm getting there now. I'm getting there. Um, sometimes I think if I had only had this child... I would have thought, oh, wow, there's something big going on here. I need to understand this. I, you know, one of my kids has really significant sensory stuff, and I just didn't have the capacity to really think too much about it until other things were dealt with in our family because the other things were more disruptive. Yeah. And, my, you know, my mom's a homebody. She's not a super, super high capacity person. So I'm not even sure it occurred to her, but here's the other interesting thing. I remember when we became a two-car family. So for a good part of this, and I don't know exactly what the timing was, but she was home with three kids without a car. So I'm not even sure that that was like a thing, you know, like how would she have gotten us to therapy appointments? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, your very lifestyle, where you lived, how you lived impacted that too. Yeah. I mean, we just, you know, when you live in a townhouse that's 16 feet wide there's a lot of them in one block and there were oodles of kids you know we just played outside all day we didn't really go anywhere this is interesting how did you adjust to going off to college or did you go off to college so I I know a little bit about your story tell us a little bit about that yeah I um set off to go far away to college again I'm a, I'm super independent I'm an adventurer I was a kid who in sixth grade told my mom I wanted to go to camp you know sleep away camp for a week at a local ranch. She was like flabbergasted. She was like, are you going to know anyone there? Like what, how did this idea even come into your head? I didn't know anyone that was going to be there. It just sounded like fun to me. She was like, do you want to invite a friend? You're going to be alone. I was like, I don't care if you can find me a friend. Great. If not, I'm going, I did that for three years. Um, and then I traveled even in the summers in high school. Like, you know, I went to young life camp. I went on missions trips. Um, and often alone and often by my, like I would decide I wanted to go and they'd say, if you can raise the money, go. And I would do, you know, like, so I was convinced I was going to go far, far away to college. I didn't, I stayed regional, but lived at college. And I was, I was happy to do that. I wasn't a, um, I didn't call home every night. You know, I, I was happy to be off of my world. I did go home on weekends. I was still dancing locally um, with the local rec council. So I like would go home for dance classes and do laundry. I was happy to have that as a like practical resource. Um, and I still loved my family, but I just, I was like ready to go. And then I met Patrick, um, like my first week of college and then was engaged by May of my freshman year of college. So that was that. So home and your family, your parents were a secure base for you. I mean, you, you were free to go, you felt independent, but you also felt very comfortable, like being home, checking in, being connected. Is that right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And then, I mean, fast forward, right? Like in 2006, we had a house project we were working on. We needed a place to live. We moved in with my parents, stayed, meant to stay for six months, stayed for two years, you know, had another kid while we were there. And we had really outgrown the space. All of us had outgrown the space. My mom was doing in-home daycare at the time. You know, it was like a 1500 square foot house. Like, I mean, it was just tight and we were ready to move on. And, but we had a great thing going because we had this really fabulous thing where I cooked, my mom cleaned, um, and we all got along really well. So instead of us moving out and separating from them, we actually made it permanent. So we all bought a house together 11 years ago. They live in an apartment in our house and it's been fabulous. It put me in a situation that I didn't know I needed because I think without them being in my house, I would have a tendency to not connect. Cause I, while I'm a people person, like I'm also a really independent person. And so I think if they weren't obviously in my space, I could go month. Like if we lived in different States, I can imagine myself going months without making contact. And not for lack of love, not for lack of love, just because like, this is going to sound terrible, but like out of sight, out of mind. I don't know. I just don't, but I mean, basically like, yeah, you just have to, be in my space as I'm going, I'm like a whirlwind. If you're not in my space, like sometimes I just forget. Because you're someone who sort of does what's in front of her. Mm-hmm. Relate to yeah. the people in front of you. And I know that for a lot of us, um, we still have really busy schedules with kids. They have to be a lot of places and you and I both work from home and all these different things. And it is, I am dealing with what's right in front of me a lot of the time. And I, I do try hard, but I literally put it in my calendar to call my mom. And even my adult kids who I adore, I have a schedule. Don't tell them this. But I have a schedule (laughs) of who I'm going to text or call every day of the week. Well, Monday through Friday. Because otherwise, like you're saying, you know, we're so busy with the kids at home right in front of us that it's easy to not remember to reach out as much as we love them. Yeah. And it doesn't mean I don't think about them. But yeah, yeah, you're right. It's in my calendar to write my one of our daughters every week. And here's the other thing that's really interesting. I don't know if it's because we're multi-generational adopted or my parents also are super mission-minded. Our, our doors were always open. There were always extra people. They had uh, taken in a single father and his daughter before they adopted me. He considers them like parents. He's like a big brother to me, even though he's I mean, he's probably a good 10 years older than my dad even. We had lots of people who we called aunts and uncles who weren't biologically aunts and uncles. My dad's still best friends with his best friend from elementary school. Wow. He's like an uncle, like he's an uncle. All of his kids are like cousins and we call each other. Like if I were to introduce you to one of his girls, I would just introduce her as my cousin, you know, and I wouldn't even think anything of it. That created in me this very open view of family Family to me has nothing to do with genetics or bloodline. It just has everything to do with relationship. And so I think that was really important too, because I can find, I feel like I can find family anywhere I go. And not that my family, my adopted family isn't important to me and that I'm not closer to them necessarily. But when our adopted kids were struggling, they would throw out those things that you say when you have really big feelings, like, you know, you don't understand, you know, I just wish, you know, my, I had a sister who had DNA, like they, they would really like harp on this whole DNA thing. No one looks like me, but I don't know my birthday. You're not, you're not my real mom. You're not my real mom, you know? And I would just like incredulously like look at them and be like, of all the families, like you just like, that just doesn't hold water in this family. Like there are 12 people living in this house and like three of us share DNA, you know, like, you don't consider auntie less of an auntie because she doesn't share DNA with me. Like you don't consider Nana and pops less grandparents because they don't share DNA with me. Like they just like, we just live. Our family culture is just so not built on DNA because no one's actually related. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is so fascinating. That is, and it's so interesting how that has, you know, growing up with all these people who were family to you, whether they were even in your adoptive family or extended family, whomever, you've taken that into this next generation with your kids where they have all these relatives and people involved in their lives who may not even legally be related to them, but are still family. It's like you have a very expansive 
understanding of what family is. Yeah, and I just feel like something that my parents did well, and I don't think they did it intentionally, but I, in hindsight, is that family was never about biology, ever. And I came into a family that was like that. And so I think because our family didn't value that biology, like it never occurred to me to miss a mother who is biologically related because sharing DNA with people wasn't a family value. It wasn't like I was the only person who didn't share DNA. Like no one shares DNA in our family. So why should I expect to share DNA? So let me ask, with your siblings and your best friend and some cousins, did any of them long for connection with birth family? Did any of them grieve that at all, do you think? You know, I can't say for sure. My sister, her, she was the only one of the three of us who ever pulled the card, you're not my real mom. And she did it at four. I don't know where she got, like I, like I said, I, some of this is just innate by personality. She's a feeler. I'm a thinker. But she had connected to a photo that she had from her file of her being held by a foster mom. And that's the mom that she identified missing. Um, it wasn't even a birth mom. So it, it goes back to like, it had nothing to do with biology. It has everything to do with this like other mom that I have this picture of that I think I should identify with. That's who she wanted to go back to see when she was angry, not the birth mom. None of us out of the seven have ever like done a search, gone... I, I'm the only one who's been back to Korea out of seven of us. Wow. That's really interesting. Not to say that none of us have struggled, but we also, I guess, haven't really talked about it a whole lot, seven of us. I know for sure my best friend doesn't feel that emptiness. Like she's very much like, these are my parents. These are the people who put blood, sweat, and tears into raising me. She was not an easy kid to raise. Like these are the people. But we've also, the other thing is we've always maintained a sense of humor We've never been afraid to joke about the the situation. And so, like, I mean, she even said to me before we left for Korea, she was like, if you see my birth mom, tell her I said hi. Like, wow. <laughs> you know, and so, like, um, I, I saw a woman in a Dunkin' Donuts who just, she's got a very specific Korean build that's not, she's bigger bone. She's not a small Korean. She's a bigger Korean, which is, you know, in the minority. So I remember just seeing this woman who just, reminded me of her build and I remember like kind of snapping like this anonymous picture of her um in a Dunkin Donuts and like emailing it back to her and being like I found her <laughs> like oh my goodness <laughs> so oh, we just, I mean we just have never taken ourselves seriously and it even goes back to um the mean kid question I didn't have mean kid questions but I um from college on I have had racially insensitive experiences quite a few of them, but I always saw them as, and I may have shared this here before. I've always seen them as fodder for a great story. Like, I don't know. I've just never been that offended by them. So interesting. I mean, I think if, if there's one thing our listeners maybe are thinking as I am thinking, as I listen to your story is that truly every adoption story is different. Every adoptee is different. Every birth mom is different. You know, we experience this in our own ways, and I think your story is good. Obviously, every story is good, but I think it's good for us to hear your story because, like you said, we do tend to hear more from adoptees and birth moms both who've really struggled a lot. It's hopeful, I think, for us as adoptive parents to hear a story that really has been so overwhelmingly positive, positive enough that you actually decided to adopt. So we've gone really long here, but do you want to share just briefly how, if, if you think being an adoptee influenced that decision and, and what just initiated that decision? Um, it's, it's actually, it's super short and sweet. When we met, Patrick was, again, a couple years older than me. He's always had his eye on a prize. And he said, if, if we're not going to date to get married, as soon as you know you can't marry me, like, just let me know. Like, we're only, I'm only in this to date, like, for real. That was like our first date. The second date was like, and I've always wanted to adopt. And at this point, like second date, he didn't even know I was adopted. Um, I've always wanted to adopt. So, you know, as you're considering this whole dating thing, you have to be in for that too. If you're not in for that, like this is probably over, which kind of left me thinking like, oh, well then, so I said, well, I'm an adult adoptee. I think it went pretty well. So I guess I can't say no is I think exactly what I said. Like, I guess I have to be on board. (laughs) Like, I don't, like, I feel like I can't say no as an adult adoptee to wanting to adopt. Yeah, that's how that happened. He's always wanted to adopt, and so we did. 
Wow. Okay. Well, that's going to be another whole story. We should interview each other sometime about how we became adoptive moms, how that process occurred. For sure. We have adopted twice by accident. Oh, we fostered by accident. But that's a little different. Yeah, we fostered by accident too. But I think yeah. I think that's a little more common than adopting by accident. Yeah. But, I know. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't fully by accident. Obviously, we had to do all the paperwork, but like we did not head into two of our adoptions thinking that we were going to adopt. Like, like we just found ourselves like in the middle of the process being like, like what just happened? Yeah. So yeah. 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 So we, that would be fun to kind of nail down all those details. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. And really, I feel like this was a very genuine interview and I've just so enjoyed hearing more of your story and hearing about your family. And I am so glad you took the time that well, we thanks. did this. I'm an open book and we talked about our Facebook group at the beginning. So hop on in there if you're not there already. I am your resident adult adoptee. You're welcome to ask questions. I know I'm now, you know, my story and my perspective and I'm not, I'm not every adoptee. So I won't claim to have the market cornered at all, but I am, I am super open. Um, I know a lot of people ask questions like, here's my question, but you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Like I'll pretty much answer anything. So if you need an adult adoptee in your life who will answer pretty much anything, I'm your girl. You can join us on Facebook. There's a link for that over at the show notes. I also am going to put up some pictures of my adoption day and some other early family pictures, picture of my best friend, just some photographic representation of some of the things we talked about today over at the show notes. You can find those at theadoptionconnection.com slash 24. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.